When was the last time you saw yourself in a novel? I think for me and many others in my generation, Amy Tan's Joy Luck Club or Maxine Hong Kingston's Chinaman was probably the first time I saw an Asian American protagonist. But that was 30 years ago. Today, in 2022, thanks to a new generation of Asian authors, you are much more likely to see Asian characters in literature that are much more reflective of a genuine Asian American experience. Today, we have the extreme privilege of speaking with one of these new Asian American authors. Her first novel, Chemistry, put out in 2017, won many awards, and she was recognized as one of the five best young authors from that year. In January of 2022, her second novel, Joan is Okay, was released and is likewise gaining a lot of attention. Both of her novels center around Chinese-American women who are like no other protagonists I've ever read. Both books are great, and we highly recommend them. On today's episode, we will talk about them with the person who knows them better than anyone else, because she wrote them. Today, we're chatting with author Waiki Wang. How's it going? Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the amazing and endearing books written by Waiki Wang. And today, we have a, a new co-host today coming along, someone on her first time with us, and she happens to be a writer herself. It's Emily. Hey, Emily. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Curtis. Hi, everybody. So, you have a little bit in common with Waiki. You started with science in college? Yeah, um, I studied neuroscience in the beginning of undergrad and then ended up uh, studying biology towards the middle of my undergrad and lit. Yeah, and then you started doing literature in the middle? Yeah, yeah. I like wasn't doing so great in my bio classes and just wasn't feeling happy um, with it. So uh, I kind of returned to my roots, returned to reading and my love for it and started taking a lot of literature and writing classes. And then, then you graduated and you make that, that hard left turn into an MFA program. What, what kind of <laughs> went through your head on that? What were you thinking? Uh, I honestly didn't know what I was going to do after I graduated. So okay. I thought I've known school for most of my life. Maybe I can continue that. And luckily, I got accepted into an MFA program up back in San Francisco. So I just moved back up and started that. Now, have you, have you written anything? Can we read any of your stuff? Uh, yeah, I mostly write short stories and I've gotten a couple published, luckily. Um, they're all on my website. Um, it's my full name with a hyphen in the middle.com. Okay, so we'll spell that out in our show notes. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, can you relate it all to the protagonists in these books? What did you think? Did you see yourself at all in them? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like I related a lot to like how with both of them, um, they felt the sort of pressure to like, pursue an education and to pursue a career. And I definitely felt that growing up for my parents, because that's kind of what all that they can give me, right? Like an education to yeah. do whatever, hopefully stable career, you know, in the future. Well, that was the easiest way, right? If you, if you mm -hmm. kind of come from a family without a lot of means education, you know, I still believe this, right? Education mm -hmm. is still the easiest way, not the easiest, but is definitely the, you can connect the dots, I think, between education and stable life you know yeah definitely that was kind of all they like knew and that they didn't have that growing up so they wanted to supply that for me and my brother was it a little tricky to convince them that writing or english could be a thing that you can make a living doing 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. Like before, like trying to go into the healthcare, uh, go into a healthcare career. Um, I was like, yeah, maybe I'll be a teacher. And they like understood that they could see a clear trajectory, you know, towards right. that career. And then when I mentioned like, maybe I'll do teaching later and I'm going to be a writer now, they were like, okay, um, <laughs> that's cool. We don't know what you're doing, what you're writing, how to get there. But um, now they're kind of more on board with like supporting me. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll definitely talk to Waikiki about that. We'll definitely <laughs> pick her brain about what it's like to to transition from science to writing. So thank you so much for coming along today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, all right. And so our special guest today is still kind of at the beginning of her writing career, but she's already established herself as one of America's best young authors. We have with us today award-winning author Waikiki Wang. Hey, Waikiki. Hey, nice to be on the show. Thanks for being so enthusiastic. Oh, man. Thanks so much for joining us. We are, I, I mean, this is quite a week for you. You were on the Today Show earlier this week. I was. Yeah. And now you're on our show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, you are busy. Yeah. Thank you for giving us some of your time. No, it's fine. It's actually, you know, um, it's sort of just like trying to manage you know, when you're on kind of things like the Today Show or when you're doing events, you're sort of just, as you know, just making time for it. And then you kind of have to maneuver, you know, your real life around these other um, events. So sometimes that can get a little hectic, but it's it's fun. It's fun. I'm glad to do it. And I'm glad to kind of like recommend books to people. Yeah. Is this part of the job that you can't, like, did you know anything about this when you went into writing? Did you say, oh, you know, someday I might be on the Today Show or, you know, doing interviews? No, no. I mean, I think what drew me to writing is I really like the writing aspect of it. Sure. And what actually surprised me is what being a writer sort of means in the modern day era. I think there's a sense of, you know, you sort of need a brand, you sort of need kind of some sort of like social media clout which is uh -huh. like can you imagine Ernest Hemingway getting on social media ever <laughs> you know like would he ever do that no but there's just certain things where um I think when you're still beginning and starting to find an audience unless you're super famous you still need to get your word out there and sort of tell people what to read um and just kind of crawl a readership. And I think that was the part that sort of surprised me, um, but it's enjoyable. I mean, it's nice to meet people and it's nice to have engagement. And I, I, I'm, just, I'm just happy that, you know, um, I'm getting asked to do these things. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's cool to see you doing them, yeah. Uh, and are you, in, are you in New York City or where are you at these days? I'm in New York City. I'm by Columbia University. So I'm like in the upper i think upper west side area yeah yeah, yeah. you know my memory of that area is uh cuban chinese food <laughs> do you ever go to la caribe or any of those places there's a lot of cuban and like dominican food here yeah yeah, yeah. A, a lot of fusion cuisines yeah great uh okay so how about a little bit more about you waiki um your parents are from Nan nanjing and you were born yeah. there yeah i was i was uh, fun fact, I was actually, so I'm much older than you. So I was in Nanjing in the early 90s. Oh, cool. So there's a chance I could have bumped into your parents or maybe even a baby Waikiki. <laughs> sure. No, 100%. What were you there for? Uh, I was there. I was a senior in college and I had a professor doing research on Lake Tahoe in California here. Uh, it's one of our big lakes. And he had a partner that was doing research on Taihu in oh. Wuxi. 
And so I was super excited when I was reading this book. There's a reference to Taihu in yeah, this book. So. Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, sent. I was sent to China for a month. I was there for a month, and I was living at uh, Nanjing Normal University. If you know. What oh that wow! Is. Cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was living in the foreign student building and helping this professor. He could write in English, and I would translate his English into better English. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean Nanjing is actually. A- it's like a cool city. I wish. I don't know when I'm gonna be able to go back, but yeah, right. <laughs> you know, kind of a big bummer. Yeah, no, but I love. Yeah, I, we did a travel episode, and I recommended it. You know, everyone knows Shanghai, and everyone knows Beijing. The way I sell it, it's it's a big city, but it's right. sort of like the Gettysburg of China. Okay. Like it has a <laughs> yeah. lot of like civil history. You know, if yeah, you think about yeah. Civil War, right? You think of like Gettysburg, Virginia, you think of Richmond. That's kind of that city for me. Like the nationalist government was there and they had a right. lot of, kind of issues. It used to be a former capital, uh-huh. um, you know, so it's kind of like very similar to sort of like the revolutionary stuff that you have to learn in. American social stuff. Yeah, yeah. But it's got a wall. It's got its own little wall. Yeah, and it's yeah. got Sonia San Mausoleum. It's a cool, cool place. Uh, so you moved to the U.S. Where did you land when you moved to the U.S.? So when I first came here, I was in Worcester, Massachusetts. And that's kind of this like small town, Western Massachusetts. And then we moved to a couple of different places in Michigan, um, and then I came back to the East Coast for college. And what were you? What were you like as a kid? Were you more kind of sciencey, or were you the the bookworm in the corner, or were you a mixture of both? Or? You know, I mean, I think I don't know. If, um, a lot of kind of Asian kids of my generation can relate to this. I didn't come from a huge reading family. Um, yeah. I think it's because of there's just a language difference. There's a cultural difference. Um, and you know, whatever my parents were reading in Chinese, they probably wouldn't be able to recommend to me. So there is sort of this loss of capital in that way. So I didn't necessarily come from a reading family. So I wasn't a big reader reader. I read what I had to in school and I read like silly things like, you know, the babysitters clubs and like goosebumps and things like that. But (laughs) I wasn't reading, you know, when I did my MFA, people were like, oh my God, I read, you know, my dad introduced me to Cheever. That, that was not my dad. <laughs> my dad did not introduce me to cheaper. So I was just reading kind of like silly stuff. And then I was much more of a science and math person because I think my um, my father is very good at science and math. Um, and he just kind of taught me a lot of these things. Um, and, you know, it's a little bit easier to, it's like a, it co- crosses a lot of languages, right? Like you can translate it, but yeah. I mean, mitosis and meiosis are not changing in right, right, you know, right. Europe versus yeah, yeah, yeah. China. <laughs> Emily, can you relate to that at all? Were you were you a reader at all as a kid? Uh, yeah. I mean, I read like Harry Potter and okay. just like a bunch of <laughs> and like also a bunch of like funny things too. And it's funny because when I started taking lit classes, all these classics like Little Women or Pride and Prejudice, like I had no idea until. I took those classes. Yeah. And I think one of the things was like, what kind of pushed me away from literature at the beginning. And I think this is what pushes a lot of, you know, to be honest, like other people out of science is like, there's almost this intimidation factor, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you don't know this, oh, how could you not know this? Whereas like at this point, if 
you know, I have a student who doesn't know how to multiply fractions. And I'm like, you're 25 years old. You know how to do this. <laughs> like, I can intimidate in a way that, you know, like I was intimidated for writing. And mm-hmm. I, I can see why so- sometimes science and math gets intimidating because you're like, oh my God, these you know Asian kids are just going to like blow me out of the water. <laughs> and I was one of them, I'm sure. Right, but right. but I, I could see it working both ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, your parents play a pretty big role in, not your parents, but the parents of the characters in, in your books yeah. play a, a pretty prominent role. Well, what were your parents like growing up? Were they supportive of, of you doing whatever you want or did they kind of steer you one way or the other? <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm going to have to sidestep that question. My parents are very supportive of, to a certain extent, okay. of me being independent. And I think they did a very good job of raising me to be very independent. I think my mother's worst fear was that I was going to be a starving artist who would like, yeah. I don't know, like use her credit card to fly to, you know, right. Budapest or something and photograph something that I didn't need to photograph. <laughs> um, so I think my parents are really afraid of that. Uh-huh. And they raised me to be very independent. I think after I went to college, I was financially independent because, col- you know, it was very subsidized. Um my family and after that I just I got a job I tutor I still work for a tutoring company um and I sort of just made it a, a you know a promise myself that if I'm going to go into art I'm never going to ask my parents for money or yeah. for that kind of like financial support and I haven't and I think I wouldn't say they're they're like thrilled <laughs> that I'm a writer um I'm sure they would have much rather i been a biology teacher to be honest um but I think they're kind of realizing some of the aspects that are good about being in the arts. Um, It's hard to sort of teach someone of that, or, you know, not teach, but make them aware that representation is important because I don't think they've ever thought about that question, nor was that a question important to their survival? Like, you know, we're talking about a generation who lived through cultural revolution, Tiananmen Square, that kind of stuff. And I don't think that was really an important question to them. But I think they're being very respectful of how I spend my time. um, And they're not very nosy about it anymore. Um, And I actually think that's kind of a win. Yeah, Um, yeah, yeah. You know, you got (laughs) to take what you can get. Sure, yeah. (laughs) So you do end up going, so out of high school, you you end up going to Harvard and you pick chemistry. Uh, what was the what was the thinking be- behind that? You know, I wanted to say that when I was for most of my 20s, before I totally went into writing, I was sort of like the golden child. Like I went to Harvard. Uh-huh. I had a chemistry major. I did public health, um, sort of some sort of health oriented thing. Um, I chose chemistry because Harvard has a notoriously difficult chemistry department. Uh-huh. And I think I was kind of like a sadist. Like I <laughs> thought I was going to do the hardest top, like, you know, yeah, I, think, yeah. um, I was always taught to challenge myself to like, kind of push myself further. And then you go to, then you like go to Harvard and you meet all these people who do like history of science. And like, you just meet all these like people who you're just like, what? And later on you meet alumni. And I'm just like, I don't even know what that major is. <laughs> That's fine. Um, so I was just a sadist and I thought, oh my God, the chemistry department at Harvard is so intense. They've had so many kind of like unhappy stories, a lot of crazy, like, you know, scientists. I really want to prove myself and work for them. But um, I think my GPA would have been a lot higher if I had done something else. It was one of these things. And I'm glad I did it. Um, I think it was... Um, I learned a lot. I actually have not forgotten most of the chemistry uh-huh. I've learned from Harvard. Um, I, I've retained a lot of that, especially the biochemistry. I, um, 
from and it taught me to be a very good thinker and it taught me sort of what grad school is going to be like uh-huh. because they kind of don't you know they don't mess around <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's yeah. no training wheels there's right. there's just like you just do it because you meet so many smart people at harvard like i thought i was smart and then i got to harvard right. and then i was just like thoroughly my ego is thoroughly bruised from being at Harvard because you need some really smart people. But one of the wonderful things about Harvard was that it is inherently a liberal arts school. I'm not, I'm not doing a commercial for Harvard, they don't do my help. <laughs> but it is inherently a liberal arts school. And I wouldn't have gotten into writing had I not met teachers there who really encourage writing for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think a lot of other schools are like that. Um, I'm sure every year Harvard accepts you know, Asian students who are very smart at math, very smart at science. But I think they're also looking for students who are like curious. And yeah. I was just a little bit curious to kind of like jump over to the other side and take a lot of English classes and take a lot of art history classes um, and just sort of explore their curriculum, though it did not help my GPA. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to use a little of the chemistry in your book. Yeah, yeah. All paid off, and and then so after after graduate, were you thinking medical school, and then you pivoted to public health, or what? What happened I there? Did I spent two years working as a clinical researcher with a cardiologist team, and I think that really disabused me of what medicine was. Um, I was working at Longwood, which is where Harvard's public health school was at. I had a friend who was in public health and it sounded really interesting. Um, For me, it almost felt like a compromise between something that was a little bit more humanities based and um, science and sort of biostatistics based. So I thought it was going to be a good kind of middle ground for me. And, you know, whenever you compromise, I think sometimes (laughs) it's hard to kind of see both sides. But um, I actually had an excellent grad school advisor. Um, Chemistry is not based on this advisor at all. I actually had one of the nicest, Uh, like, you know, lab PIs as a grad student I could have ever asked for. And I think that's when I really knew that maybe epi or public health wasn't my passion. And I don't want to just, you know, use passion in the word like frivolously, but I had like a pretty great experience. I had, you know, four papers come out in grad school. They were pretty straightforward papers. Um, My PI was really nice. No one, you know, no one was unhappy in his lab um, Uh and I didn't love it. And so I just thought if I couldn't love it in that situation, you know, I might Uh as well just like tether myself to this wagon for writing and see what happens with that. So did you, were you concurrently enrolled in the MFA while you were doing your PhD? Yeah, I was, I was. (laughs) Because, you know, back to the, back to the parents, my mother wasn't super sold on this idea of you know like think about it you tell your parents i'm gonna leave harvard to do writing i think um they're they're just a little shocked um and i I think even white parents would be a little shocked they just just want to be confused right yeah um and in their confusion i think they're like i think you need to finish this degree so that you have some sort of backup if 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 the writing thing doesn't work um, and I, I see that now, you know, I do see that parents just, they're just nervous that yeah, you're not yeah. making the best choice. Sure. Mm-hmm. Sure. When, when did you start writing chemistry? Was that part of the MFA or is that a little bit after? That was part of my MFA thesis. Yeah. Ah, mm-hmm. ah, so I see the pieces falling together here a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And um, so you, you write chemistry, it comes out in 2017 mm-hmm. and, um, and it, was it overnight success or did it take a little 
bit for people to find it? I think it takes a little bit. Um, just like with John is okay, I think it's always taking a little bit. And I think this always just speaks a little bit more to what it's like to be an Asian writer in an uh, American publishing industry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad, you know, it got the recognition that it did. We weren't expecting that. And I think my publishing house wasn't expecting that. Um, so I, I'm just, I'm just very flattered and, and pleased that it, it has gotten attention, but I don't think initially it was, um, you know, thought to do well. <laughs> yeah. But, but you win the Penn Hemingway yeah. award, the it's for new authors for their debut novel and you, you're named to the national book foundations, five under 35 to keep an eye on and it's, it wins other awards as well. And you start making a little bit of the tour circuit and you're, you're doing more speaking. Was, was that just a whirlwind for you coming out of grad school and all of a sudden, you know, people are asking to come on TV and whatnot? (laughs) Sort of. Um, I think this was, that was my first rodeo with publishing and okay. So I, you know, if you come from like any kind of science background, it's, the, just the publishing and television world is, is so different. Cause I think it's just run by people who are right minded you know yeah. like yeah. sort of like governed by their right brain um but it was it was nice to dip into the water I mean I think you know I like it enough to still do it I was in science for like two decades and at the end I was like I can't I couldn't do it uh, <laughs> but it's really helped me I used to be pretty um introverted it was actually hard for me to talk fluidly about my work and I actually think doing a lot of events has helped me be a little bit better public speaker um mm-hmm. in expressing what I like to do my work, what I want to accomplish, what I want to represent. Um, and that's also important. It sort of helps the speaking and the writing together. Yeah, yeah no, for sure. And so earlier this year, your second novel comes out and mm. it was released uh, January 2022. It's called Joan is Okay. Uh, it's on men- It was on many people's most anticipated books list. And yeah. it's uh, New York Times editor's choice. And we just yeah. we just read it. So uh, congratulations on that. Uh, thank you. Thank you guys for reading. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it yeah. was definitely our pleasure. Emily, what, do you, what are your first thoughts on this book after reading it? It was a really great read. I mean, I read Joan is Okay first and then went to Chemistry. Oh, yeah. um, yeah. And both were just such a fun read. Like, I love how you've like put humor into it. It, it was like such a fast read for me for both. Oh, good. Good. I always hope to make it a fast read, even though it takes me years of my blood, sweat, <laughs> and tears. <laughs> I was the opposite. I, I looked at them. I was like, oh, 200 pages. I can finish this in a week, you know, and then, but it's, it's, it's deliberate. Your writing is so deliberate. You know, you're in the head yeah. of these people. Right. And, and I had to think a lot, <laughs> you know, maybe it's just me, but I had to think about why is she saying that or why, you know, there's a lot of questioning going on. So I, I appreciated that part of it as well. So I guess for some it's quick and maybe have you heard that for most people is quick or, or do people take their yeah, time? Yeah, I think, you know, chemistry, because it was kind of about um, a girl, a woman who was suffering sort of like from a mental, just like a break in terms of career things. Um, and it was very reflective of just how I thought about things in my 20s. Um, Joan is much more of an older, more sort of sure of herself person. And I knew Joan was going to be a risk because Mm -hmm. the narrative of chemistry, that's a coming of age story. The first book to write, the easiest to write is a coming of age story. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think most debut writers write that. Um, And I was no different. I just kind of wanted to stylize it and do something different with it. 
Joan is was kind of a different beast in that she I knew she wasn't going to kind of bend to other people. Um, and I knew she was going to be either kind of for some readers. And I'm just thinking about the American readership. Mm-hmm. They're either going to sort of hate this character or really love this character since she is, I would say, very representative of an Asian doctor that represents a <laughs> third of the health force yeah, you know, in this yeah. country. And this character, though, because of probably their quirks is not written about or because it somehow forwards or some something about the model minority, whatever, it's like not talked about. Yeah. And um, I think it's important. I think it's important to highlight this kind of character who has sort of become singly molded by work and her desire to kind of push herself through work um, and sort of strive at striving and sort of her parents' immigrant story. I kind of wanted that flattened character at the beginning because I see that all the time. I'm, I'm like friends with these people. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah no, um, we know them too. <laughs> yeah, and I think oftentimes we're not talked about because there's a sense that you, we want to see crazy rich Asians on TV. Right. We want to kind right. of have this Asian person that's enviable and handsome and rich and vapid you know and they're just like white people because (laughs) and i think that is somewhat dangerous because it sort of erases a lot of what got you know a lot of my generation into the workforce um and they're hardworking people but i think they really had to trim a lot of them like their own personality down to kind of fit a certain mold that a company wanted or you know like what they were looking for things like that right yeah so Did you, do you get a lot of fans and readers who say thank you for for writing about me, you know, because I, I do, it's a mix. I get a, a mix of both. I get, a, you know, <laughs> Instagram is kind of a blessing and a curse. <laughs> right. I get a lot of tags like I really love this book. Thank you for writing it. And then I get a lot of tags being like, I had no idea why you wrote Jen. She's so confusing. Uh-huh. You know, I don't really get her or like chemistry. Like, is she depressed or does Joan have autism? And what kind of makes me realize, and I knew that's why like these books are risky to write sometimes is that the medical field is defined by like, you know, medicalization is defined by the other, right? Like if you have a bunch of American doctors figuring out, oh, well, this person's robotic and blah, blah, blah. And she's Asian and she's autistic, you know? Um, there's a sense of kind of like binning categories. And I do see that sometimes. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't really get your character because she kind of just seems autistic because it sort of fits like this stereotype that I have in my head of like Asian people being very quiet and just working a lot and yeah, yeah. maybe not noticing that I'm trying to satirize this or caricaturize this or kind uh-huh. of like lean into it. Um, <laughs> how, you know, it would be... <laughs> How would I not be aware of these stereotypes I grew up with, right? So there's sometimes that sort of force. And I think that's what makes um, writing about, you know, characters like this and um, American publishing a little bit difficult. It's just trying to find the audience, connecting with the audience and, but not, you know, having to justify everything or Uh explain everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me read the description of Joan is Okay, and then I think we're going to throw out a spoiler alert. So I'll, mm. I'll read this first, and then maybe we'll get into the the juicy details. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so this is from Penguin Publishing. Joan is a 30-something ICU doctor at a busy New York City hospital, the daughter of Chinese parents who came to the United States to secure the American dream for their children. Joan is intensely devoted to her work, happily solitary and successful. 
She does look up sometimes and wonder where her true roots lie at the hospital, where her white coat makes her feel needed, or with her family who try to shape her life by their own cultural and social expectations. All right. And we should also say it takes place in about six months from 2019 until early 2020. Yeah. That's important detail, right? We'll that is an important detail. So, all right, everyone out there, if you have not read the book, go ahead and get a copy and uh, read it and come back and listen to the second half of this podcast. Uh, usually we play a little music to kind of let people get away from their devices before we spoil it. Any, any ideas what song we should play? I was thinking, I was thinking maybe some Beatles in honor I of think Eric. Beatles is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking, I saw your note on the doc, and I was like, yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good song. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. So here are the Beatles. When the song is over, you better be gone, or you'll hear some spoilers. <laughs> Let's talk about this book. Uh, let's talk about some characters. Let's talk about Joan. First of all, Joan has a name. That's kind of new. That's kind of a new thing. Yeah, I'm, try- I'm trying something new, naming my characters. <laughs> but that, that becomes pretty important. I think later on we, we learned that her her name is, was the, now in, in the book was Joan first or Juan first? What, what came first? I think um, both because I needed to find a name that was translatable yeah. in both. I just... It, I just couldn't do it if it couldn't kind of go back and forth, right? Um, and that's, you know, to your question of why I don't do names, it's so hard. Like, I, <laughs> I get stuck on this cycle. It's a loop that, you know, I think a lot of, not me, would would get into. I, there's just so many, this is my Chinese name, this is my American name, and the sense of, why. Well, chose a Chinese name to make it easier for you to pronounce. And so like, like all of that, you know, yeah. is in my head. Right. And names have so much to do with identity, but so, so I, I was kind of grappling with that for most of stories. And I think I don't name characters unless I can come up with a good name for them. Like, mm. like I know this name is going to stick. This is a good name. I can kind of break it apart. Um, and if it's going to be a Chinese name, I do want to write in the Chinese. I think it's, nice to be able to see Chinese on text um, in in an approachable way. I don't think people do that, but people put French and Spanish and Italian in books all the time. And I have no idea what they're writing. Um, So I think it's important for Chinese characters to get some sort of space and kind of like an English, you know, text. Yeah. I thought that was beautiful. And Mm -hmm. I, I heard that at one point you were maybe a Vicky. Oh, I was, um, I was thinking of changing my name to Vicky before college, just because, you know, you could kind of like say, this is your name, Wikey, and then you could kind of change it. And I was just not, I just, I couldn't do it. Like I didn't want to change my name. Um, And it's already an Americanized pronunciation and I'm fine with it. You know, I'm fine with it being pronounced the Chinese way when I'm with my family and people who are Chinese um, and it, being just Americanized in another. It's pretty easy. I usually say Waikiki. It rhymes with Nike or it's yeah. like Beach. It's like very, I don't, I've never had an issue with it. Yeah, I've just yeah. had people misspell it, but like I've never had people like mispronounce it after I've kind of like told them how it's pronounced. But, mm. but that's part of the Chinese American or Asian American experience for a lot it of is, kids, you is. know, 
Like I teach in San Francisco and Emily knows that our school is heavily Asian. Mm -hmm. And that's the dilemma for a lot of kids, you know, and they come in and they they change their name to make it easier for teachers or teachers maybe suggest it, you know, like, and that happens all the time. And, and, you know, if you're an eight year old kid, you're going to go with what your teacher says, of course, right. And sometimes it's just it can be a little heartbreaking at times. So I'm, I'm glad you put that in there that she has both names. And yeah. then she even has that her parents call her a, a Chinese version of Joan. They call her Jonah, right? Like yeah, they, they yeah. change it a little to make it easier for them. So well, I think the whole point was no one in this book actually calls her really by Joan. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. like they all have their version of her. Like, you know, yeah. um, Tammy's like, oh, Joni, because she's like a little sister. And Fong calls her Joanne. And, you know, her mom is like Jonah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, no one really calls her by her <laughs> name. Um, and I, I think that's kind of just like an echo of occasionally you just, you know, if you if you stick with a Chinese name or something or a foreign name or anything that's like kind of you, you have families in many different continents, right? Many different generations. Yeah. There's just this schizophrenic fracturing of your name and you just sort of end up living with it um like I was talking to a friend and she was like you know I get really angry when people call me Anna instead of Anna and I think I just stared at her I was like (laughs) okay (laughs) and obviously you know was like you know white American girl who I think that was like her biggest split with her name and I I just you you have to be understanding but after a while you're like I don't you know it's different it's very different yeah um and i think it's important that i don't know we kind of keep chinese names i'm sort of a big proponent of that or find some sort of compromise or you know yeah no i agree i agree emily you have a chinese name or do you go is it translated at all uh yeah i do have a chinese name i don't really get called that anymore like my parents will sometimes call it like they used to call it when they were mad at me and then i like (laughs) revealed it one time to like um, my friends in high school and in college, and it got, like kind of got made fun of because it it's Wong Siman and it like sounds like a certain word. Uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, oh. yeah, in Cantonese. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a common story where it's like you know I was talking to the author uh, Fuk Tran and P H U C, and you know it's easy for his name to be uh, turned into yeah. other words, so yeah. it it's tough, you know, but. Uh, it's part of the experience, so I'm, I'm really glad that you put that in there. Yeah. Uh, and then you can't help but notice that your main characters tend to have science backgrounds. <laughs> That's not by accident, I, I take it. No, I mean, I think it's easy for me to kind of get away with it because I don't need to do that much research. I mean, I, I, do, I did actually have to do a lot of research for Joan, but it's not as... If, if I had chosen to, to, I guess, like do a photographer or do a film director, I would have like <laughs> been so out of like my depth. But I think these kinds of things I'm better at. Oftentimes, science occupations and fiction get, they're just, it's just totally wrong, right? Like you either have this God complex or you have just like bad renderings of this kind of job when it's sort of just like every other job and the people are just as crazy as every other occupation um and they're smart but they just know their own like little two by two square of information yeah and to be honest you know some of my doctor friends who read read joan were like i wish you had made her more glamorous i was like you like to be glamorous you complain to me every day about finding poop on your shoes i don't know why you wanted something glamorous you can watch Grey's anatomy that's Uh, (laughs) 
about Joan, she's kind of a workaholic. Like why can you kind of talk a little bit more about like why she likes to work so much? Yeah. So, but so I wrote, you know, in the essay notes on work, um, as along with when Joan came out and to be honest, I mean, I know so much about being a workaholic because I am a workaholic, but <laughs> why am I fascinated by this? Well, I think there's something workaholic about just American culture in general, something that kind of accelerated through the pandemic um, across all races. I think Americans like to work, you know, they at least like two generations ago. I don't, I don't really know about Gen Z right now. Jerry is <laughs> really still out on Gen Z. Um, but like think about like post-war America, right? The industrial kind of like that sort of working um, industry person. And I think that's really ingrained in our culture in some ways. And I wanted to pivot that with this rising animal of wellness which is now everywhere right the sense of like mental health and wellness and sort of you know if you have one migraine don't come to class like something like that (laughs) where it's like there's just you know humans can't modulate so this is like crazy pendulum and i wanted to sort of echo that with the kind of like the immigrant background in a way that isn't like toiling and totally suffering but like working in a very respected field but just like she's working so much because i don't think she knows what else to do like Uh, she's been trained to do this and she does it incredibly well and her boss seems fine with it Mm -hmm. and kind of just like moves forward with it and it's it's uh, again meant to be an exaggeration because if i wrote (laughs) real life it wouldn't it wouldn't be fiction it would have been fun to read it wouldn't have momentum right yeah Um, it wouldn't be surprising but i did want to kind of just comment of the sense of you know i I was in a, like a maid of honor, like crew with six other doctors and pretty much when they're talking, they just want to kind of like outcompete each other about who works the most. And I don't know why anyone wants to win that game. It's like the worst game to win, but there's a sense that you're kind of not worth anything in this country if you don't work. And that's the immigrant mentality, right? Like yeah. you don't have anything to provide. Why would they want you here? Right. right? And I right. think that's a very harsh, but cruel truth to often, Oftentimes, this kind of like, I would say this sort of like stipulation of studying a lot, working a lot, you know, you have to have some sort of like value, right? And your value is measured in work and skill. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the guys. The, I, I like yeah. the guys. Uh, I, it sounds like you like the guys, as you right? I do. As I do like the guys. <laughs> so we have her colleague Reese. Uh, he's kind of the <laughs> pamphlet cover model. Reese. He's a doctor. Her neighbor Mark, who is a he's a consultant. He's a literary consultant, or what? What's it? Yeah, job? he's sort of like you know, it's one of these jobs that I did not know existed, and you, <laughs> you guys probably don't know either. Like uh-huh. this freelance editor, you know, like okay. they make like a hundred dollars an hour just editing somebody's manuscript is kind of insane to me (laughs) (laughs) and her older brother fong yeah so i mean they all have their flaws but i think overall they all have good intentions right they they all they all love joan in their own way right yes yes and you know they're all sort of like versions um of you know they're like kind of like entertaining but oftentimes one note characters that are that are good to kind of put into a comedy like this and they all sort of represent multiple facets of their life like reese is really he doesn't want to admit it but he's sort of just threatened by joan at work even though (laughs) one of the things with work is joan is not preventing reese from working hard you know joan is just like doing her own thing and i think 
the threat of Reese is like, well, if you're working hard, then I can't, but no one's hindering Reese. Like that's the, yeah. that's like the mental block he doesn't have. And Mark is sort of this like, you know, neighborly New Yorker who's always telling you what to read, what to eat, what to watch, like this like culture beacon bastion. Uh, Yeah. Um, And they're all well-intentioned and they're all kind of like trying to just sort of mold Joel into something that they would want to, you know, they they would, they could kind of claim, right. You know, I, I think oftentimes when people are like, you should read this. And then when I read it, they're like, oh, I taught her. I told her how to read. I told her what that, that's what she did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, the yeah. sense of claiming that yeah. you were the source of that kind of information or that kind of change is what these people are, you know, seeking. And all of them sort of have this like older brother sort of vibe to them. Yeah, like yeah. Um, that they, they just, they see that she's maybe suffering or, you know, suffering in her own way and they, they just want to help. Yeah, no, I definitely said, like, because she's small, too, right? We know right away she's about five foot tall. And mm-hmm. maybe because she's unconventional and quiet, it just yeah. makes guys around her feel like they need to save her, you know, need to. Right, right, uh, right. So the guys are there, and, and we like them. Um, but then in the end, we realize that she doesn't need any help. <laughs> she's right. She's mm-hmm. fine. And then probably the most complicated relationship is her mom. I think the most mm-hmm. complicated relationship was her mom, and she, um, what? What can you say about their relationship? They don't say a lot of words to each other, but they communicate constantly and they're always... Right, right. I think they communicate sort of through just like, well, being together, you know, spending time together and not filling that time with fluff. Like, um, you know, not the American sitcom family where you kind of just like laugh and, you know, jerk and go fishing or something. Um, They're they're just spending time together and that's what they think is care. But they're also very, I think they're very hard on each other, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're hard on each other. And only this kind of like family who's sort of been through a lot can be right. And I think company goes a long way. Um, Attention goes a long way. And but one of the biggest complaints of a family like this, if you're living in it, is just it feels like you're getting suffocated and it just feels like everyone is trying. But that that kind of attention is also care, you know, whether it is kind of not the care that is like, oh, I'm going to you know, give you a cookie kind of care. But it is care. And it's the care that I think if you didn't feel suffocated, then you would feel totally alone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you get comments that. This resonates a little more with Asian American audience, the the relationship. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think I get a sense of, um, well, people who get the relationship, you know, a lot of, I think, readers also would have a hard time with that relationship. Um, I wanted to write a relationship with parents, like Asian parents sometimes in fiction and in nonfiction get so shafted by the writer Mm -hmm. because we're just kind of blinded by rage in some ways. Um, And I think there's a sense of like fairness that has to be delivered to these characters because they don't have a voice. They're never going to write in English. That is sort of the Mm -hmm. lost generation. And so if I am kind of putting that character there, I sort of need to give it some sort of fairness, but some sort of truth. I have no interest in making her the white, like mean girl's mom. You know, I have no interest in making her that mom. I have no interest though, in kind of like playing down some of the honest things that just have to be talked about in the, in this family, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's just a hard balance to strike. Like she's not the mom who says honey and sweetheart and pumpkin. um, And is just like, 
your cheerleader, you know, yeah, um, yeah. because that just feels like total assimilation to me and um, untruthful. Um, but I also didn't want her to make her, you know, these these like mothers who just come off as complete villains in books that right. have there's no tenderness to that. Right, right. I, I think I, not necessarily for myself, but I know there there are people who could relate to the sitting in the taxi for 20 minutes just to yeah. just to process everything in silence. Yeah. 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 So. It's hard. I mean, I think, you know, my parents, if I think about it, they were my only family for like, you know, 13 years, right? Like, if I left China when I was, like, six. Um, And they're your only friends. Because if you're moving a lot, they're really your only friends. So, Mm. and I didn't have any siblings. So, I think about how that, they're just my world, right? And how can you kind of separate that um, for a character like this? All right, Emily, you want to talk about structure a little bit? Yeah. Um, So, I guess with both books, like, there's you don't really separate it out with like chapters, but there's like this fragmentation in the narrative and that like reads almost like a stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was wondering if like that kind of came naturally as you were writing it, was it intentional to fragment it that way? Um, And like, just overall, like how did you really like structure both books and like, if there was a difference, I guess. I don't, I'm not against chapters. Um, Mm -hmm. I just think sometimes it kind of, it kind of moves with like the cliffhanger and then you go to the next chapter um, I like the sense of structuring structure that helps with momentum. Mm-hmm. So I think individual sections always work for me. I do like more of a collage style because a collage style is always easier to write <laughs> and then shuffling things like present and past action in there. So sometimes it, it, it does, it doesn't feel like my writing naturally lends itself to chapters because I don't find a you know stopping point and then I'm like new chapter. Right. Mm-hmm. And the thing I'm working on now, I mean, it's third person, but it also doesn't have chapters. I think I just sort of like the individual <laughs> segments. I sort of like to kind of create a perfect segment. And then let's talk about the timing of this book a little bit. Did you write this book before the pandemic or right in the middle of the pandemic? How did the timing so of this I book? I had turned in, it's, it's so unfortunate. I turned in a copy of a draft of it, March 2020, and it had no oh, pandemic. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. And so I had to rewrite, yeah, I had to rewrite a lot of it to kind of incorporate um, the pandemic aspect. Uh and it, it becomes kind of another character, right? It not character, but it's a huge part of the plot, right? Where yeah, it is a huge part it, of the plot. As soon as you start mentioning fall twenty nineteen, yeah, and you know, I, I think it's so fresh in our mind, right? Like it's it seems so fresh. like yes, yeah. Um, it was just no way around it. I'd already picked her occupation. She was an ICU doctor before in New York COVID City <laughs> started, like before yeah. COVID started, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah. I thought, you know, December, I was like. Is this gonna be a big deal? No, I don't think it's gonna be. A big deal. <laughs> we all <laughs> then, did, yeah. And then it was like, oh my god, mm-hmm. I have to figure out a way to like include all of this, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So that was kind of a bummer to to really. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you um did that affect how you brought the second half of the book has a lot more culture in it? You know, you bring in the Chinese yeah, characters, yeah. and did that come about because of the pandemic as well and the and the a little bit narrative um she was well she has nothing to do so she <laughs> the second half of the book yeah um she can go to work i sometimes think work is a distraction um the occupation you know and i think a lot about this like i think why did my parents really want me to be a doctor because that that's like a master identity like you don't it doesn't matter if you're chinese it doesn't matter if you're a woman you're a doctor you know and i think how 
great, but also how somewhat unfortunate that is to not want to be these people, you know, to kind of be somewhat embarrassed to be these people, right? And that goes back to the name thing, to be embarrassed to be Asian. And I I, I say that that's true because I've experienced it, right? Yeah. The sense of, you know, you, don't, you just want to be everyone else. But there's something very dangerous about that too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a generation just wanting to not be that, then it's, it's problematic. So I think there's something to be said about like Chinese culture, Asian culture, but especially Chinese culture in this book, because the, the, the virus comes from China and it just, yeah. it just kind of accelerated so many, I don't think stereotypes that were gone, but stereotypes that people just didn't think was okay to say, but then could again. Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was very disappointing. Um, and I think oftentimes, you know, I bring in Chinese characters because I, I kind of want to encourage the next generation to read and write Chinese. It, it really is scary how quickly Chinese is forgotten. Like that doesn't happen in Spanish. That doesn't happen with French. That doesn't happen with any Western white speaking mm. language. Russian mm. doesn't happen with that. Ha- doesn't even happen with Korean. Think about that, you know? Yeah. But like the the next generation, no one wants to speak Chinese. And I attribute that to oftentimes the anti-Asian, anti-China sentiment that's always in the U.S. Sure. It's very exhausting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think some of that kind of comes out in my writing to kind of express the frustration of that sort of identity growing up here. I think one, I mean, we'll end on this one. One big idea in this book, I think, is home. And yeah. What, what, what were you thinking when you're, you're thinking of, of the idea of home for this book? Right. I mean, home for her, I do believe is in the workplace. She loves that place and she doesn't put any stock in her actual home base. But I think at, by the end of the book, she's thinking more about, well, you know, her home can expand, right? And also um, her home is sort of where she feels safe. And maybe that's at work, maybe that's with her um, brother, right? Mm -hmm. But I think there are certain points where she needs to feel safe. So at the end, when she's like kind of self-isolating in her own house, that's really where she feels unbothered, safe, um, and that she's, you know, not quote unquote, taking up too much space, right? It kind of comes back to that first line of she's always a little worried of how much space she's taking up, Mm. right? In terms of what she can provide. Um, And I think at the end, she gets to a slightly um, more mature idea of home. But if you ask me, I don't know where my home is. You know, I I was born in a place, I live in New York. um, And I think New York is at this point my home because it's where I've developed my professional life, right? but it, I don't have relatives in the state other than, you know, my parents who live in Michigan. So like, where is home, right? Like, I don't have a hometown. I don't have family that lives within like two zip codes of each other, right? Um, and I think that question is unanswerable at a certain level. Um, I think my kids would have a home. I think my, it takes three generations right. really, to kind of create this. Uh, my grandmother has a home. You know, my cousin in China has a home because she, They've never my left. kid has been there for like, <laughs> yeah. like, hundreds of years mm-hmm. so yeah yeah uh and then we have a question that we do at the end of these segments is called who's your infatuation uh an infatuation is anyone that you admire in the asian community could be alive or deceased or someone you know or someone you don't know so waiki wang who is your infatuation at this moment? oh my god that's actually really hard uh i'm gonna have to what what are <laughs> no what are some of the answers that you uh, we've gotten Bruce Lee. We've gotten, yeah. um, you know, my grandfather. We've gotten, um, uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Yeah, it's just someone that's on the tip of your mind that you know you could name something in the news or anything. 
oh, this is so hard. I mean, I think, you know, if, it, if it's not a famous person, it would have to be my grandfather because my grandfather is really the only person in my family who made an effort to read my first stories in English. Like he would translate every wow. word from wow. English to Chinese. And he, he introduced me to... Um, Mariah Carey. He was a huge Mariah Carey and Celine Dion fan, even though he had no idea what they were saying. And Red Hot Chili Peppers. Like, wow. he introduced me to these musicians in a way that my parents never would have. I, I don't think my parents know who Red Hot Chili Peppers are. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, my my grandfather is really into that. And then he played me, like, Hotel California. And I was like, "How do you even know what they're saying? I don't think so. <laughs> but he sort of liked the music. And he was a physicist. So, and, you know, he, he lived in died in China. So uh, I think there is a sense of Asian being very interested in culture. You just need to take the survival question of immigration out for them to have time to think about culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, sounds like a cool guy. Yeah, he was very cool. All right. All right. And then the last question is, uh, do you have any recommendations for us, uh, Asian author that we should be reading, maybe get on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did, you know, on the stage show, I recommended Don Lee. I think you could try to get him yeah. on the podcast. Oh, yeah. He's, he's awesome. Um, his first book, Yellow, right? Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. Debut collection. I read it two years ago, so I was very late to the party. But it's a great book. And his new one, Partition. And I think in 20 years, it's interesting and also fascinating to see the span of a person's career. You know, wow, and I'm yeah. starting out, but he's kind of at both ends right so you can really see how he's changed and he really is fascinating he did an event with jennifer egan where he was like you know i didn't i used to not want to write asian characters and now these issues do preoccupy me and i have to write them and i think that's important for you know next generation of people to think about is like if you don't write asian characters who who is going to write them right Right? um so that that is something to that i think was a really important message yeah Mm -hmm. 20 years ago 30 years ago maybe he just didn't want to be known as an asian author maybe i I know i know and i think now it's it's you know you still see restrictions right like red and yellow covers like there's there's still so many restrictions um and, you know, people not understanding Asian Asian characters. But I think one of the big things about representation is not just representation, but like engagement. You sort of need to have people like you guys who are really engaged <laughs> with the work. And that's what kind of helps a lot, right? I think 20 years ago when Don Lee was writing, the Asians weren't reading. No. Yeah. You know? And yeah. now Asians are reading. And that's important. Yeah, no, uh, there's there's a steady stream of authors coming out that, you know, I, I notice. I'm like, oh, should we try to get them on, you know? Yeah. So that's great. You know, it's, it, it'll be a great problem to have if I have too many to choose from, right? I know, I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> but that's uh, more books for you to read. Right? I know, yeah, no, that's good, that's good. <laughs> but you might not have time. <laughs> <laughs> well, the APs are over, right? AP yeah, yeah, no, I got summer. Yeah, I have summertime. <laughs> you got summertime. <laughs> oh, man, so Waikiki, thanks so much for coming along. It's been so fun Thank talking you. to you. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great. Thank you, Emily. Of course. Well, that does it for this episode. Best of luck in your career on your books. Thank you. We're looking forward to it. You got more. You said you're working on something. You don't have to give away the farm here, but you're working on stuff. Yeah, I just finished ish a novella. I think I need to do some editing for it in the next couple of days and just see, send it out to my agent, see how it goes. But yeah, doing a lot of, you know, I'm still writing. It's just, I, I think every work that I want to do is, 
is I'm trying to do something a little different than what I did before, right. mm-hmm. just so it's not the same. And I'm sort of trying to do new techniques or new ideas or, um, yeah, so it's been, it's been a fun process. All right. So everyone mm-hmm. out there, get a copy of Chemistry or Jonah's Okay from your favorite local bookstore. Uh, you can follow Waiki on Instagram at Waiki Wang, and I'll put that in our show notes. And thank you too, Emily, for coming along and co-hosting today. Yeah, thank you. Um, this was awesome. This is like my first time in a podcast, so. Yeah. Really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you did great. And everyone out there, thank you so much for listening. We hope you learned something. That's one of our goals. And as mentioned, you can always write to us at infatuationpodcast at gmail.com. And give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook at The Infatuation Podcast. And we'll put all these details in the show notes. On behalf of Waiki, Emily, and myself, we hope you're all happy, healthy, and safe out there. Talk to you again soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.